If you have your Bibles with you this morning, would you turn with me to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 11? Luke, chapter 11. In Luke 11, verse 1, it says, One day Jesus was praying in a certain place. When he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John taught his disciples. He said to them, When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us. And lead us not into temptation. Then Jesus said to them, Suppose you have a friend, and you go to him at midnight and say, Friend, lend me three loaves of bread. A friend of mine on a journey has come to me, and I have no food to offer him. And suppose the one inside answers, don't bother me. The door is already locked and my children and I are in bed. I can't get up and give you anything. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give you the bread because of friendship, yet because of your shameless audacity, he will surely get up and give you as much as you need. So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. The one who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, How much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Let's bow in prayer together. Our Father, we come before you today in prayer, asking that you would help us to learn and to apply these words that Jesus taught us about prayer. Father, I pray that we as your disciples, as your children, that we would come more often, more faithfully, more confidently before your throne of grace, that we may find grace to help in time of need. Father, thank you for the privilege of prayer. Thank you for the way that has been opened up to your throne through our great high priest, the Lord Jesus. And so, Father, teach us today by your spirit and through your word. And we pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. Can you imagine a couple, a young couple walking up to the marriage altar? They express their vows to one another. They are married. They communicate their love and their loyalty to each other. And then after the marriage ceremony is over, they never speak to each other again. They just live day after day in silence. Would you consider that a healthy marriage? Certainly not, would you? 
Without communication, there can be no development of a deeper relationship. Without even basic communication, the relationship will not go forward. It will go backward. It will even die. It would be absurd to think that a marriage relationship could thrive or even survive without communication. So why is it that many times in our lives we think that our relationship with God can thrive without prayer? It cannot. Just as any relationship, any marriage, any friendship cannot grow and thrive without communication, our relationship with God, our Father, cannot thrive without prayer. The last several passages in the Gospel of Luke have taught us what it means to be a true disciple of Jesus Christ. In uh, Luke chapter 9 and 10, we learn that Jesus taught us that to be a disciple means to put our hand to the plow and to not look back. It means to count the cost, to follow Christ with all of our heart, soul, and mind. In our passage uh, a couple of weeks ago, we saw that to be a disciple of Jesus means to love other people, to love our neighbor as ourselves. And that neighbor can be anyone, someone who's not like us, someone who is not necessarily has a lot of interest in common that we do. They may be of a different color of skin, a, a different nationality, a different language, a different socioeconomic class. Jesus says we need to expand our definition of neighbor and love our neighbor as ourselves. Last week we saw in the home of Martha and Mary the importance of devoting our attention to Christ and to his word. And that sometimes we busy ourselves with stuff, with just doing things that we don't stop and devote time, dedicated time, faithful time to undistractedly focusing on the word of Christ. That theme of discipleship continues here in chapter 11, where Jesus teaches his disciples how to pray. And I think the lesson that Jesus teaches us from this passage is really clear. And that is that prayer is an essential part of the life of a disciple of Jesus Christ. It's essential. And there are many ways in which it is essential. And Jesus teaches us many of those ways in this passage. Uh, Jesus is praying and Luke doesn't tell us much detail about when this is or where this is, he just describes it as a certain place. But Jesus is praying, and that, that's a usual pattern for Jesus, isn't it? You read the Gospels, and you see Jesus in prayer a lot, especially before key moments in his ministry, whether it be the choosing of the Twelve, or uh, before his uh, baptism, or uh, even... Uh, before the soldiers come and arrest him in the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, you have Jesus in prayer often. Many times the Gospels will say that he went aside to a solitary place to pray and to commune with his Father. And so this is a normal pattern of Jesus to be in prayer. How is it that we think that Jesus needed prayer, but we don't? He's the Son of God, isn't he? He's the Son of God. He is fully in harmony with the Father and with the Spirit every moment of his life here on earth. And yet he found it important, necessary even, to go to his Father in prayer and to speak to him. 
in that is Jesus showing us the necessity of it and, and also teaching us by way of model, of example, that this is how we should also relate to our Father. And so Jesus gives his disciples a model of behavior, a model of example when he is often in prayer. But on this particular occasion, when he's done praying, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray just as John taught his disciples. This is a reference to John the Baptist, who by this point in the Gospel of Luke's story, John the Baptist has already died. John the Baptist has already suffered martyrdom. He's been beheaded by Herod. And so John had followers. John had learners. He had disciples that he taught the word of God and pointed them to Christ. And John taught his disciples how to pray. And, and so Jesus' disciples are saying, Lord, we want you to teach us to pray like John taught his disciples to pray. And one of the questions I've had in my mind, and maybe you've had it as you've read this passage, is how could the disciples of Jesus spend all this time with Jesus and not know how to pray? And I think what is important for us to understand is that what Jesus is doing here, and really I think what the disciples are asking, is not so much the methodology of prayer, or how prayer works, or, or, you know, what kind of components should there be in our prayers. I really do think that they're asking Jesus for a prayer. For a prayer. In the ancient world, in, in Israel, among rabbis and those that were under their tutelage, they were learning from them, oftentimes that teacher, that master would give their followers a, a prayer that they would pray together. And it kind of served as a, a community prayer that, that bound them together as a group. And that may be along the lines of what Jesus' disciples are asking here. We, we want to be your disciples. You're our rabbi. You're our teacher, our master. We want to be known as your disciples, and we want to have a common bond with one another and with you in a prayer that you would teach us. And so this is a prayer that Jesus' disciples prayed, perhaps together. And throughout the history of the church, going all the way back to the early church, we can find many, many examples of the liturgy, the order of worship of the early church and on through the centuries where this became a common component of their public worship gatherings to recite the Lord's prayer together. And perhaps that is one purpose for why Jesus taught it to his disciples. But I think there's, there's more to it than that, that this goes beyond just a formal rote prayer that we say as a group, as a community of believers together. There are also things in this prayer that teach us a lot about how to pray and about what kinds of prayers we should have before our Father, what kinds of things should be in our prayers, what kind of attitude or mindset we should come before our God in prayer. And the first thing that we see in this model prayer that Jesus gives his disciples is that when we pray, we are speaking to our Father, God. And this is really remarkable when you read the, the whole Bible and especially the Old Testament, 
and you see the way that the Israelites and the prophets and the way that they referred to God, generally speaking, they did not refer to, to God as their sole individual father. In the Old Testament, God is pictured as a father, but generally pictured as a father kind of corporately of the whole nation of Israel, uh, of giving his people birth as the nation of Israel. But often in the Old Testament, you don't find individual followers of God referring to him as father. And so this is really quite remarkable that Jesus invites his disciples to, as they begin their address to God, to say, to the creator of the universe, you're our father. And that immediately puts this into a certain attitude, a certain framework, a mindset, doesn't it? That, that when we come to God, we're not coming to a stranger. We're not coming to a stranger. We're not coming to a, a far distant, removed deity who is, who is out there somewhere. We're coming to a father that we know. We're coming to a God who made us. We're coming to a God who lovingly shaped us and made us. And as David prays in in Psalm 139, Lord, you made me, you knit me together in my mother's womb. This is a God who with tender care brought us into existence and loves us. Not only physically, naturally as human beings, but then also by way of redemption, God, our father loves us, doesn't he? He loves us before the dawn of time and made us in union with Christ even before the beginning of time and then called us to himself by a powerful word of grace through the gospel and opened our eyes and our hearts to believe and become children of God. As John writes in John chapter one, To those who believe, God gave the right. God gave the authority. He gave the privilege to become children of God. He loves us. And so we come to the God of the universe as a child to a father. That that orients the relationship. Secondly, when we come to God in prayer, we begin by honoring the greatness of God. He says, when you come to your father, pray, Father, hallowed be your name. Hallowed be your name. The idea of this is, Lord, may your name be set aside, be set apart, sanctified, consecrated as holy. Because God, you are holy. May may your name be regarded as holy among all of your creation." It is a recognition of the greatness of the majesty of the holiness of God. And that, yes, he is our father, but he is also the holy God of the universe. And only by way of Christ's redeeming work can we come into the presence of this holy God. And so, Lord, may your name be regarded as holy. May it be famous and known throughout the world. When we pray, we need to be in harmony with the priorities and the plans of God. Jesus says, when you pray, ask God, pray to God, petition God that his kingdom would come. And as we read in Matthew also, that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. The idea here is, God, 
May, may your plans, may your purposes, may that be that which is fulfilled through my prayers. Really what Jesus is teaching us here is to as much as we can, as much as we can know from the revealed word of God and that his spirit is teaching us in our hearts and molding us after the character of Christ, that as much as we can, our prayers should be in line with God's plan and purposes and will. Now, there are some aspects of it that we can't know because God hasn't revealed it to us. So when we pray, for, some, for example, for someone to be healed from cancer, we don't know what God is going to do in that situation. God has purposes. He has plans that are infinite, way beyond our ability to comprehend. And those are the secret things that belong to the Lord our God. We can't know those things, but we can pray in line with the revealed word of God. We can pray in line with what he has taught us. We can pray in line with his character traits of grace and of compassion, of mercy. We can pray in line with his uh, attributes of power, of infinite might. We can express our faith to God in that, even though we don't know what the outcome will be. And we can then, in the things that we don't know, we can do as James teaches us to do, Lord, if it's your will. Let us live and do this or that. So in the things that we don't know, we say this, Lord, let your kingdom come. Let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We seek to as much as possible line up our plans and priorities with the plans and priorities of God. And that means that we don't come to God selfishly in prayer. Just wanting stuff, just desiring stuff for our own comfort in this world James says that if you come to God that way, that's probably why you're not getting what you're praying for because you're asking out of your own lust. You're asking amiss. You're asking wrongly. We need to be praying in line with God's purposes and plans. Also, when we pray, every time that we pray and lift our voice to God, every time that we get on our knees, we express our dependence upon God. Every time. That is the very nature of prayer, isn't it? That in coming to God, we are communicating to God, Lord, we need you. And that should be something that we do, not just when times are tough. In other words, we should not treat God like the dentist or like the auto mechanic. You know what I mean by that? You go to the dentist when you have a toothache. You go to the auto mechanic when something doesn't work on your car. Let us not treat God that way and treat our dependence upon him that way, not just when something's broken. But every day of our lives, remind ourselves, as Paul says in Acts chapter 17, that every breath that we breathe comes from God. We're here right now, this very moment in this place together, alive and breathing because God's grace is upholding us. And so we come expressing our dependence upon God. And so Jesus teaches us to pray, Lord, give us today our daily bread. And this references the time of the Israelites in the wilderness, doesn't it? Where the people of God were in need. They were in the middle of a barren wasteland. They had nothing, no water, no food. And God says, I'm going to provide for you. Every day, I'm going to provide for you. And each day, you're going to go out and you're going to gather what I provide for you. 
that took faith. God says, do not gather more than you need for the day, right? If you do, it's going to rot. It's still going to be unusable. What was he teaching them in that? I will take care of you, but I'm going to take care of you day by day. Don't expect me to give you a month's worth of supply in advance. I'm going to give you what you need today. Tomorrow you come back again and I'll give you what you need tomorrow. And, And I've used this line in this prayer several times when I've talked with people who are going through times of great difficulty, of loss, of sadness, that God gives us each day what we need, not just in terms of physical bread, but just the grace, the strength that we need to make it through that day. Depend upon him each day for the spiritual strength, for the encouragement, for the grace, just to walk with him through that day. Reminds me of the widow with two little coins. Remember Jesus pointed her out and says she gave more than all these others. Part of that was her faith that said, Lord, I don't know what tomorrow holds, but I'm going to give you everything I have today. That meant that tomorrow she was going to pray, Lord, give me today my daily bread. She was dependent upon God for everything. And so we're reminded in Matthew 6, where Jesus taught his disciples, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and then all these other things will be added to you as well. He says in that context of Matthew 6, don't worry about your clothes. Don't worry about your food. Don't worry, your, don't worry about where you're going to live. God takes care of the flowers of the field. He takes care of the birds of the air. Just seek his kingdom first, and then he'll take care of these other things as well. So trust in God, depend upon him for all things. Jesus teaches us in this prayer that when we pray, we ought to confess our sins before God. He says in verse four, Lord, forgive us our sins. For we also forgive everyone who sins against us. I believe I'm convinced that we need to make confession of sin a more regular part of our prayer life as believers. And 1 John 1, 9 tells us that we can have confidence that when we confess our sins, they're forgiven in Christ, aren't they? They're forgiven. Because God is just and merciful to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so we come to our Father and we acknowledge that we are sinful. We acknowledge and praise him for his grace that has welcomed us as sinners into his presence through Christ. So when we pray, we confess our sins before God. We also, when we pray, need to ask for spiritual protection. Verse four says, and lead us not into temptation. And in Matthew's version of the prayer we have, but deliver us from the evil one. So Lord, in other words, protect us from the evil that is out there. I think one of the worst things that we can do as disciples of Jesus is to become overconfident when it comes to our ability to walk in the ways of Christ without his grace. 
To him who thinks he stands, take heed lest he fall. We need to remember that the world that we live in is a dangerous place, not because of wars and of guns and of knives, but because of powers and principalities and of the ruler of the darkness of this world, Paul says in Ephesians. And so we need armor. We need the armor of faith. We need the helmet of salvation. We need the the breastplate of truth. We need the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. We need our feet shod with the gospel of the preparation of the preparation of the gospel of peace. We need God's protection. We need his word. We need his spirit. We need him to help us in those times of temptation because we are weak and we are prone to fall into sin. And so may we depend upon God for spiritual protection as well. And then Jesus teaches us also in this context that when we pray, we're invited to come boldly to the throne of God. He gives a parable beginning in verse five. He says, suppose you have a friend and you go to him at midnight and say, friend, lend me three loaves of bread. A friend of mine on a journey has come to me and I have no food to offer him. And suppose the one inside answers, don't bother me. The door is already locked and my children and I are in bed. I can't get up and give you anything. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give you the bread because of friendship, yet because of your shameless audacity, he will surely get up and give you as much as you need. The key word in this passage is in verse number eight that is translated in the NIV as shameless audacity. In the King James, we have this old word importunity. Other translations may use something like boldness or persistence. It's a very interesting word. It's the only time it's used in the entire New Testament. And the idea of it is to be bold, almost unashamedly bold, to the point of throwing out social conventions. I don't even know if I can come up with a good illustration for this, but basically it's, it's like someone who does something so much out of the ordinary, so much, so, mu- so much out of the realm of what's proper, dignified, culturally accepted, that it's almost embarrassing. That's the idea of it. It's, sometimes we understand this passage as the idea of persistence because he kept on knocking that's an element of it, but, but the keeping on knocking is really just a part of this idea of just being shamelessly bold and of, and of doing whatever is necessary to provide hospitality for his friend. He is willing to suffer the reproach, the embarrassment, whatever it takes to get what he needs. Think about it. In the ancient world, showing hospitality was one of the highest virtues in the ancient world. The entire ancient world, even outside of Israel, hospitality was a virtue. You welcomed someone into your home, you provided for them. The worst thing in the world that you could possibly imagine is to have nothing to provide for a friend who came into your home. Come on in, but I've got nothing to give you. That would have been a a shame, a reproach upon him. And so he is willing to suffer whatever embarrassment, whatever shame is necessary 
go outside of the normal boundaries of what is culturally normal to get what he needs to share with his friend. And so he comes in the middle of the night and he's knocking on the door and he's doing something that most normal people would say, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do that. That's going to be too embarrassing. That's going to be too too much of an imposition. It's going to be whatever. I'm not going to do that. This guy throws out all of that and says, I'm going anyway. And he goes and he knocks on the door of his neighbor's house and he knocks until he answers. And, And maybe he draws the man out of bed and opens the door because he's embarrassing the man inside the house. Here he is at midnight making a racket outside, yelling, knocking on the door. Hey, I need you to come and open the door. The guy gets up out of his bed, not because he's a friend, but because he doesn't want the whole neighborhood to wake up and see this sight that's going on at the door of his house. That's the idea here of shamelessly bold. Audacity. And he says he will get up and give him as much as he needs. Now, often what Jesus does in parables like this, especially when he's teaching us about the character of God, is he goes from the lesser to the greater. So he says, here's a man, normal human being, fallen, frail, imperfect. And this guy comes and asks him, and he asks him this way, boldly, boldly, shamelessly, with audaciousness. And the man gets up and gives him. The point is this, how much more willing would God be to give you what you need than this man? God is so much more willing to give, isn't he? He is so much more open to us coming before him. He has open hands to receive us before his throne of grace and to help us in our time of need. But so many times we have, we don't go. We don't go to God. We don't ask for help when we need it. Now, I want to make a confession myself here. I hate to ask people for help. I really do. It's probably my pride, my desire to be self-sufficient, but I hate asking people for help, especially when it's something that I should know how to do or something that I should have. But that's just my sinful pride. But sometimes we do that even with God. We don't go to God and we don't ask him what we need because we don't want to go or we don't want to admit that we're dependent or that we need help, that we can't handle it on our own. Put aside all of that, all that possible shame of feeling that you can't handle it on your own and recognize that you can't and go to God, shamelessly bold, approaching his throne of grace. And in this context, verse nine and 10, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find, knock and the door will be open to you. For everyone who asks receives, the one who seeks finds and to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. And some have suggested here that the idea is, again, persistence. Ask and keep on asking. Knock and keep on knocking. Seek and keep on seeking. And perhaps that is a part of it. But I think Jesus is just telling us to go. 
go to the throne of grace. Go and ask. Go and seek. Go and knock and be bold and confident in doing so. As Hebrew 4 told us that we have a great high priest who has gone through everything that we've gone through so that we can come before the throne of grace and find help in time of need. And so when we pray, we're invited to come boldly to the throne of God. And lastly, in verses 11 through 13, Jesus teaches us that when we pray, we need to trust the goodness of God. When we come and we ask, we need to trust the goodness of God. He says, which of you fathers? And again, I think the analogy is purposeful, isn't it? Because how did he tell us to, to pray? Our father who art in heaven. Which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, even though you're evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Again, from the lesser to the greater. You're sinners. You're selfish. And yet you still give good things to your children when they ask. Even in your sinfulness, you're still good sometimes to your family. Your kids can come to you and expect to get what is necessary, what is good, what they need from you. Now, here's the thing that Jesus does not say in this passage. He doesn't say, if you go to your God or you go to your father and ask him for a fish, he'll without fail give you a fish. If you go and ask him for an egg, he will without fail give you an egg. Because sometimes God doesn't, does he? God doesn't give us always exactly what we ask for. But here's what Jesus is teaching us here. He's not going to give us something bad. In the grand scheme of eternity, he's not going to give us something bad. He may give us something hard. He may give us something that we don't want. He may give us something that we don't like. But in the grand scheme of God's plan of your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, God will give us what is good. And so just like a kid comes up to his mom or dad, please, can I have a cookie? No, you may not have a cookie, but you may have an apple. But I don't want an apple. Apples don't taste as good as cookies. But being a good father, a good mother, you know what is good for your children. And so you don't just give them cookies all the time. You give them what they need. You give them what is good for them, even if it's not something that they specifically asked for or wanted at the moment. Here's the thing. God knows what we need better than we do. Because our needs get so mixed up with our wants that sometimes we can't tell the difference. But God knows truly what we need and what is good for us. And so we need to trust him in his goodness. If a normal human father gives good gifts to his children, how much more our heavenly father who is perfect, who is righteous? As James tells us, every good and every perfect gift comes from above, 
from the father of the heavenly lights in whom is no variableness or shadow of turning. He is faithful. He is good. He is the giver of good gifts and we need to trust him. And so my final question, how often do we pray? How often do we pray? Because we need it. We need it. Just like Jesus taught Martha, you need times to sit and just listen to the word of Christ. Put aside all this stuff, all this busyness, and just sit and listen. Well, similarly here, there are times when we need to follow the the example of Jesus and just find a quiet place and pray. We need it. It is essential to the life of a disciple of Jesus Christ. And so may we be more faithful in prayer and follow the pattern that Jesus has given us and taught us how to pray in this passage. Let's bow in prayer together. Our God, we come before you today and we just thank you for the privilege that it is to read and listen to the words of Christ. This wisdom of the ages, the wisdom of the very word of God. And Father, in this passage, he has taught us what is needful what is important, essential to our lives as a disciple of Jesus. Lord, guard us from overconfidence. Guard us from self-sufficiency. Guard us from our own pride, the deceitfulness of our hearts. Lord, remind us of how important it is for us to depend upon you, the one who supplies and gives us everything that we need. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the privilege of prayer. And God, may you continually, day by day, remind us to come before your throne of grace. And Lord, we do seek from you today just the daily grace that we need to walk in the ways that you have laid out before us. Lord, may you be glorified through your church. And we pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.